0: I'm looking forward to preaching today. Um, We are coming back into the series that we left off in the summer in the Gospel of Mark. And I don't know if you remember this, it's a long time ago, but when we started 2023, we began a journey um, following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And pretty much most Sundays until mid-July, we were in the Gospel of Mark. And we left off right after the feeding of the 5,000, that story in Mark chapter six, and this evening, um, we're going to pick up right where we left off. So this is the end of Mark chapter 6, right uh, after the feeding of the 5,000. And I kind of just wanted to paint the picture of what this story is, is like, because it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of story. Like, it's, um, it's not one of Jesus' big teachings. It's not a sermon of Jesus. It's not a parable of Jesus. It's just like something that happened that Mark wants to tell us. And it, it got me to thinking um, about the different gospel writers and how, how beautiful and like blessed we are to have four different gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, because they each one have their own kind of stamp or their own mark or their own way of telling us the story. And because we have four, four aspects or four angles, we just have a much more robust picture of Jesus. So. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all telling us the story of Jesus, um, and each one kind of is different. So in Matthew's gospel, he has these huge sections of just Jesus' teaching. In fact, he, he organizes Jesus' sermons and his sayings into five distinct sections in the gospel of Matthew. A lot of people think because Matthew's writing to mainly Jewish people, and it's, it's like the five books of the Torah, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. So Matthew's got this emphasis on Jesus' teachings. And of course, in Matthew's gospel, that's where we get the Sermon on the Mount, which we've spent lots of time in as a community, because it's one of the most formative texts in all of the world. Uh, Luke's gospel is different. It's got all kinds of things, but one of its uniquenesses is, is that it, Luke has parables that none of the other gospels have. And they have some of our favorite parables like the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the good Samaritan or the parable of the friend at midnight. These fantastic stories that, that grip our hearts and imaginations, That that's what Luke gives us. And then in John's gospel, we don't have any parables. I don't know if you've ever noticed that there's zero parables in John's gospel. But what we have in John's gospel are some of these meta themes, like emphasis on seeing and perception, uh, the theme of abiding in Jesus as Jesus abides in the Father. So in John, we get to learn what it means to get close to Jesus and know him intimately. And of course, in John's gospel is where we get those seven I am sayings. Uh, declaring the the identity of Jesus as as God's son, as God in the flesh. And so what's the deal with Mark's gospel then? Because that's one we're talking about. Well, Mark's gospel, it seems like the driving emphasis is on the actions of Jesus. Mark writes with a sort of like a kinetic voice, like an active voice. One of Mark's favorite words, if you just notice, if you ever read it straight through, is immediately. Everything's happening, happening immediately in, in Mark's gospel. Um, he, he writes actively and lively. Um, it's almost like the message in Mark's gospel is in the motion. So you don't get long sermons, you don't get lots of long parables, but you get a lot of action in Mark's gospel. And, and to get the most out of Mark's message about the life of Jesus, you've really got to pay attention to the details in the story. Mark Mark 6, 45 through 56 is no different. That's our text this evening. Um, And when I read this story, you're going to notice that it is not a parable, that it's not one of Jesus's teachings. It's not even a controversy story where he's being confronted by, say, religious authorities or something like that. Now, this is a story of something that happened in the life of Jesus and his disciples. And yet if we look closely, this story itself preaches to us about who Jesus is and about the good news of God and the good news of how we can draw close to that God. So my task tonight before you is to draw out some of these details and to help us to see that these deeds of Jesus are communicating something to us. And I hope to shed light on what that is. Holy Spirit, I pray for your help, Uh, both help me to proclaim this good news, to proclaim it well and coherently, Lord, help us all to have hearts and minds who are open to what you're saying to us, not just to understand it in our minds, but to have the courage and the will to follow what you're saying, amen. I'm going to read the story. It's coming right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus is in the wilderness with over 5,000 people. They're all hungry. He's got five loaves of flatbread and two probably dried up fish. And he multiplies that such that they eat their fill and there are 12 baskets left over. Immediately, there's that word again. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Now, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at the fourth hour or the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the water, and he intended to pass them by. But when, he saw, or when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him, and they were terrified. But he immediately, he spoke with them, and he said, Hey, take courage. I am. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished for they had not gained any insight from the incident with the loaves but their heart was hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, of course, immediately, the people recognized him. And they ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on pallets, those who were sick, and they placed him uh, where they heard that he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces. They were begging him that they they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it, they were being cured. We're at this point, six chapters into Mark's gospel. And even though Jesus is walking on water to his disciples in the middle of a storm, and and even though doing these works of healing and stuff is absolutely amazing, we're sort of like, yeah, sort of what Jesus does. We're six chapters in, he just does stuff like this all the time. He's already calmed a storm, actually a a worse storm in chapter four. So this is sort of like, eh. Uh, And and he's healed all kinds of people up to this point. And so why does Mark spend time putting this story in his, like, he's the shortest of the gospels. Like, is he just trying to fill space or uh, why does he choose this and not like a lot of the other cool stories that the other gospel writers have? Like, what is it about this story? Well, Mark's gospel, begins with the word, so this is verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay? So we know that this whole book is trying to communicate to us good news about Jesus. And he's trying to tell us something about Jesus in this story that must be good news for you, good news for me. In this passage, Jesus hardly speaks, he doesn't tell any stories. He doesn't preach any sermons. So we're gonna to have to look elsewhere. And I wanna point out a clue that is going to suggest how we understand this passage. Here's the clue, it's in the text. It's in chapter, or, uh, chapter six, verse 52, verse 52. And in verse 52, Mark the narrator says that the disciples were utterly astonished because they had not gained any insight from the loaves but that their hearts were hardened. There's zero loaves in the passage that we're looking at this evening. And that means that to understand this passage, we're going to have to reach back to the one right before it. Because whatever is the deal with the feeding of the 5,000 and those loaves, that's the lens through which we need to interpret this passage. Okay? Um, in that story, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is in the wilderness with a large group of Israelites who are oppressed by a foreign ruler. And in this story, the people don't have enough to eat. So Jesus takes what they have, multiplies it so that they have plenty, more than enough of two items, bread and meat. Now, if you think of the whole Bible, does that story sound somewhat familiar to you? It sounds a lot like the Exodus to me. The exodus from egypt right a large group of israelites in the wilderness oppressed by a foreign ruler and moses goes out there he's the leader he he's the anointed one he's the the, the deliverer the messiah he he goes out there and miraculously praise to god god provides manna the stuff that you can squish up and make a bread product with and quail a meat product okay so very similar stories uh, that's the context. Now consider our story. Jesus sends his disciples on ahead of him, and then he takes time to disperse the crowds that he just fed, and after that, where does he go? He goes up on a mountain to pray. Now we've got Exodus vibes from the feeding of the 5,000. You might recall that Moses went up on a mountain, uh, and he went up there to pray and to draw close to God, and when he came down, were the people happy to see him? Were they relaxed and chill? It says they were terrified. In fact, he was glowing so much that they said, put a veil on, you're too holy, you've been too close to God. Okay, so let's see what happens next in Mark's gospel. It was evening. It's an ominous detail. we, we read evening, It says like it's just another thing because we have lights. In the first, in the first century, um, darkness was, was scary, right? There's no electricity, there's no flashlights. Disciples in the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus still on land, um, you know, they've departed from him now, much too far for the naked eye to see a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee at night. Um, somehow, with some sort of insight or special knowledge, Jesus knows the disciples are straining against the wind. They're rowing hard. And this next bit can get a bit confusing, so pay attention. Verse 48. Seeing them straining at the oars for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass them by intended to pass them by. We might remember the story from a few chapters earlier where Jesus is asleep on the boat. The disciples are in this mega storm. It overtakes them. The disciples are terrified and they think they're going to die and Jesus calms the storm. And if we're thinking of that story, we might accidentally read into this story and think that it's something similar. Mainly that the disciples are in trouble and that Jesus is going to rescue them. But that's not what the text says. It says that the winds were against them and that they were straining at the oars. But it doesn't say that they were in trouble. And it doesn't even say that they were afraid just yet. So while Jesus came to them walking on the water, he intended to pass them by, not to To bail them out or to rescue them. What's going on here? I mean, let's go a little further uh, and I'll try and make sense of it. Um, Jesus intends to pass them by, but then they see him walking on the water. That would be a weird thing. They think he's a ghost because they don't really have a category for what's happening here. Uh, They can't imagine someone, you know, like walking on water. That's not been done before in their lifetime. And they're terrified. And immediately, of course, there's Mark's immediately again. uh, Jesus says to them, take courage. It is I, literally in Greek, it's I am. Don't be afraid. Have courage. Don't fear. I am. Four major clues in this passage that I want to point out of why the story is so significant and why Mark wants to tell this story if he wants us to know Jesus. The first is the specific time that Jesus came to them. We know it was evening when they set out. The darkness is just setting in, right? The evening is just the beginning of the darkness. It's gonna be uh, quite a journey for them. It was in the middle of the sea and probably in the middle of the night when they were straining at the oars, but at the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them. The fourth watch of the night is by Roman reckoning. It was used uh, to divide the, the nighttime for soldiers into four distinct sections. So, like, you've got the first watch, Chuck, I'll take the second. Brandon's on the third watch, Collins gets the fourth watch, right? It's just how Romans would divide the time for, uh, for military purposes and keeping watch. So, the fourth watch of the night is around 3 to 6 uh, a.m., and it's the dawn. It's when you see the transition from darkness to light, and the sun begins to break in and lights everything up. Now, why is that significant? Because in the Hebrew scriptures, God often comes to the rescue or reveals himself, you guessed it, at the fourth watch of the night or in the dawn. Take Exodus 14, 24, for example. Uh, in the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the armies of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Right. So when, when did God come to the rescue? It was in the morning watch. It was in the dawn that Yahweh comes. So just as... God comes to rescue at the breaking of the dawn, so Jesus comes to his disciples at the fourth watch of the night. One of the great scenes of Tolkien's, right, the two towers makes reference to this idea when Gandalf comes, when is it? At the dawn, right, and the sun's coming up, and he comes down, well, at least in the movie version, he comes down on that hill with the Calvary and rescues everyone in Helm's Deep. It's amazing. Love it. Right? Ooh, that's a goosebumps moment. So, I mean, that's He's picking up on this theme. Uh, so take note of when Jesus comes and arrives on the scene. Okay, that's the first observation. Second observation concerns how Jesus arrives, right? Jesus has the disciples out there. He could have hired a crew and um, taken a boat out to meet them, but instead he comes walking on the water. Uh, this is this New Testament scholar, William Platcher, who makes this observation I thought was keen because I never put all this together. He's like, of all of Jesus' disciples, besides the shriveling of the fig tree, all of, others, all of other Jesus' miracles, I mean, uh, they're all practical. Like, he does stuff like heal people, or he casts out demons, or he multiplies food, like he meets a need. Like There's no need that he's meeting with just walking on water, right? Like, like it's, not, it's not a practical thing. So what is he doing? Is he, is he trying to show off? Like, why does he choose this method of transportation? Walking on water in the scriptures is a known attribute of Yahweh and no one else, like Yahweh alone. So like in Job 8, or Job 9, 8 I should say, um, it says of Yahweh that he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Or Psalm 77:19 speaks of God saying, your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. Right? So, so the way that Jesus seems to, to, to come to them, it makes an allusion to the way that God has mastery over the sea. Right? So those are two observations. It's the timing that Jesus comes. He just so happens to come to the disciples when Yahweh normally comes to the rescue, and that he comes to them in a mode that's attributed to only Yahweh. As far as they're concerned, the only scriptures that these disciples have is the Old Testament, and that's where it talks about God doing these things. Um, so the third, and the most confusing on the surface, at least, is the detail that Jesus came to them, but intended to pass them by. He wasn't even coming to help them. Um, didn't he care? Well, why, did he, why did he want to pass them by? Did he want to beat them? Did he want to like, get there faster? I have no idea. Uh, as I pointed out earlier, um, that text doesn't indicate that the disciples were actually in trouble. It just says that they were struggling. Like there's a lot of struggles in life. Uh, not necessarily where you're where you're in trouble or your 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 life is in danger. So what does it mean that Jesus wanted to pass them by? Well, since there's all of this Exodus imagery, and since Mark wants us to look at that type of imagery by looking at the feeding of the five thousand, um, we should consider the story that, that Wayne Youngquist read a little bit earlier from Exodus 33, where Moses longs to see the glory of God, to know God more fully. And God agrees to do that by doing what? Passing by, by passing by Moses. Moses wasn't allowed to look at God. His intensity would be too great for Moses to handle, but God placed Moses in the cleft of the rock, and while he was turned away, God passes by Moses, revealing his glory so much so that when Moses comes down, having never even really seen God's face, he's just glowing, and the people are freaked out. Third detail. And the fourth detail is that when Jesus speaks to these disciples, he says, I am. Do not be afraid. In the English text, it might say, It's I, or it is I, or something like that. In the Greek text, it's very distinctly, ego a me, which is how you translate I am, which is how God introduces his personal name to to Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses, remember, he's stuttering and he's like, God's called him to go rescue the Israelites from Pharaoh. And he's says like, whoa, 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 what, what if I get there? And they say like, who sent you? What should I say your name is? I don't even know your name. And Yahweh just says, you tell him. you tell them I am sent you. And that name encompasses the, the one who was and the one who is and the was who will be, the one who is ever becoming. It's actually a verbal name. It's amazing. We'll sermon on that sometime, but like, it, it, it's just this, I mean, and even in English, it community, like you gotta have, what do you call it, what do you call it, kids? You gotta have some riz or something like, if you're saying like, you tell them, tell them I am sent you. I mean, that's all. that's all I gotta say. It's like a drop the mic situation. So. So Jesus is saying, I am, you know, and and that's that name, that title, that's only for God um, in in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, So Mark the evangelist wants to tell the world about Jesus. And when we consider not just any of these individual noticings, but when you consider the collective weight of those four noticings of this text. You've got a story of Jesus arriving when Yahweh arrives and the mode of transportation only uh, reserved for Yahweh, um, passing by like Yahweh did with Moses and declaring himself by the identifier, I am, which is God's identifier. So, When Mark mentioned that the disciples hadn't gained any insight from the loaves or the incident with the loaves, he doesn't mean that they doubted Jesus could do cool things. I mean, they were with him. They're the ones passing out the food. They knew Jesus could do miracles. Up to this point, they've seen him heal so many people, calm a storm. What does it mean that they didn't gain any insight from the loaves? What it means is that they hadn't put it together, that Jesus was not only special, that he wasn't just a miracle worker, or maybe a great prophet. They hadn't put it together yet that he was son of God, Messiah, God in the flesh. They hadn't gained that insight yet. Yeah, the disciples probably would have appreciated some help from the hard work of rowing against the wind But Jesus knew that they needed something more than just a bailout. They needed to know him more than anything else in the world. To know God as he truly is, it's Jesus. You know, we have the luxury of hindsight, thousands of years of interpretation by Paul and the apostles and the church. And when we read about Jesus, we see how he loves people and how he treats people. We're seeing God and what God is like when we see Jesus. But this story is so much more than just a theology lesson or some proof text to say Jesus is more than a man, he's divine or he's the Messiah or he's God. It's it's more than just a lesson on the true identity of Jesus. Notice that even though Jesus intended to pass them by, he ended up stopping. He, He had compassion on the disciples. He probably had hoped that they would have had more insight that they would have had softer hearts and open minds to perceive his true identity but they didn't and he did not hold their lack of faith or their ignorance against them and you guys that is such good news (laughs) don't undersell that good news character of jesus the story points to Jesus as the Messiah and the incarnate God. And what we see is that if Jesus is God, then God is so compassionate and so caring and so willing to meet us where we actually are, not where we think we should be or where maybe even he wishes we were, but where we actually are. I don't know if you put it together, but you can only be where you actually are. So it's really good news that Jesus is willing to meet you where you actually are. His actions have communicated his glorious identity, but the disciples didn't get it yet. There's lots of us who still don't get it yet. In fact, even if we do get it, like theologically and conceptually, do we ever truly get it? Like 100%? I was reading this book by Friedrich Buechner earlier this morning, and he was quoting Maya Angelou and she would always like, when someone, when she would meet someone, they would say like, I'm a Christian. She would always be taken aback. Like, wow, that's a, that's a confident assertion. She would always say like, I try really hard to be a Christian, but I'm just not very good at it. That might be a more honest assessment of where we're most of us are at most of the time. Um, Do we ever truly get it? Like living 100% by faith, trusting Jesus 100% with all of our mind and heart and soul and strength. Do we fully love our neighbors as ourselves as Jesus commands? Like doubtful, sorry, maybe you really nailed it and I'm underplaying you. Show me your ways. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus intends for us to grow and to mature, and thankfully the work of the Holy Spirit is to help us become who we were created to be, glorious image bearers of God. But the good news of this story is that Jesus does not wait until we're perfect to reveal himself and to commune with us. Just like he emptied himself and came to dwell among us, dying the death of a criminal, to rescue us, so also he gets into the boat with us when we're struggling and when we're afraid and completely dull as to the work of God around us. And that's exactly how the story ends. Jesus goes to the other side of the sea and there he's met with people with a bunch of problems. They brought their sick and their desperate faith that maybe just maybe if he would If they could touch the the edge of his cloak, they would be healed. They don't have the high theology of this text. They don't even know that Jesus ever walked on the water, that he got into the boat with the disciples. They don't know that he came at the fourth hour and was gonna pass by, and that he said, I am. They don't know any of those details. What they do know is that they're desperate for help, and they heard something about this guy because his name had gotten around, and they thought, if I just get close to him, I might get the help I need. And I want to submit to you that that posture, that desperate need, that's what faith is. Um, I'm all for education. (laughs) And I think theology is important and good. And, you know, let's let's keep doing that. But don't ever put that in front of, we just need Jesus. And he's accessible and available. That's what the story is telling These people responded to the one who passes by with innocent, desperate need and faith in him. And they were healed. As we prepare to come to Jesus around the communion table, I want to invite us to pause and confess any hardness of heart that we might have toward Jesus or towards other people. Let's respond with just the most unarticulate inner gut-wrenching repentance. (laughs) It can be ugly and sloppy. It doesn't matter. But let's respond to him with trust and hope. thank you for meeting us in this moment. Just like that compassion on the voice. Thank you for meeting us where we're at. And thank you for this good. That we can be honest before you. Come before you with our desperate need. Forgiveness of healing of so many things. Holy Spirit, help us to continue in honesty and trust.